Okay, we're live. Devereen. Joshua. Thank you. Um, so, this, uh, we're starting a brand new book of the Torah. Which made it easy to find in the scroll, let me it tell does. you. It does. It's a big, nice, white, white cap there. It's not brand new, it's really old. Right. We're starting another book of the Torah. Um, uh, we, uh, have gotten into the book of Deuteronomy, or Devereen, meaning words. Uh, this is the last one, so home stretch here. Not the last portion. The last, the last book. The last book. Um, we're we're uh, rapidly approaching the high holy days and the uh, the start of the new uh, Hebrew year. So um, looking forward to all of that. This week uh, begins. Moses begins with a um, a rebuke. He critiques Israel for um, mostly what the prior generations have done. Uh, it's kind of, but it's essentially it's a. It's a it's a it's a criticism leveled at the, against the whole nation. It's, he's telling them, look, this is the things that y'all have done wrong, um, and uh, it's an interesting commentary from Rashi on this week's portion, talking about you should uh, about the I guess the appropriateness of rebuking people when you're about to die. I guess it's a good opportunity. The relationship's not going to get you know not going to be bad for too long. Um, you get a chance to kind of clean clean the slate here, say what's on your chest, and, and move on, literally. Like Jacob um, did. Like Jacob did, and like Samuel did, like David did, <laughs> and like Yeshua did. If you look in Matthew, uh, was it 22? Um, he is in his last week. He's just days away from his crucifixion, and that is the time that he takes to help to reprimand the uh, the Pharisees. He's leveled critiques from time to time, but they've been mostly small and short, um, to the point. Uh, but this his strongest, sternest rebuke, the one that probably most clearly parallels what we see. Um, from Moses, or certainly what we see from uh, from Samuel um, later, is um, is done right before he dies. So I think that's kind of a cool parallel to Moses that he kind of he kind of takes a similar approach. This is the time to critique the leaders. Um, he also uh, another um, I think the, I think that the lesson in that is not so much that you should not rebuke someone until you're about to die, but rather <laughs> to uh, how many how many thought that? <laughs> but rather I think the, it's, I think it does it does help. Clarify perhaps the um, the seriousness of it, you know, to realize that like um, the deathbed confession. There's a balance here. Like on the one hand, we are commanded by God not to allow sin in our brothers, so we're not supposed to just let things happen in front of us and never say anything. But especially when it comes to like public rebuke, you should be extremely careful about it because it can go sideways and it can sometimes not be received well. Even Yeshua himself says, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. You know, to some people, just it's not worth the damage that would be done, even though it's normally a good thing. So I think it's just kind of a good—it's um, a tempering, I would say, because because uh, you can kind of go on both sides. You can be too afraid to say anything, but then you can also be too eager. So I think that's just kind of the—that's my takeaway there. Yes, sir. Um, this is different from the first four books. It is. It is the it's, second telling. Yeah, and, and hence Devarim, right? Um, Deuteronomy, uh, second law. The the thing that's really different, though, that the sages point out is that the first four books, we constantly hear, and God said to Moshe, say to the people, and that's not what's happening now. This is his retelling of it, and 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 this is the quintessential movement of God in the spirit of a man to mm -hmm. superintend what he writes. It's great. Mm -hmm. so. There's an interesting um, uh, commentary from Rashi as well in this passage that talks about, well, so this is after the 40 years are done. This is when they're about to go into the land. 
And when Moses is talking, he uses an interesting word uh, in relationship to, and God spoke to Moses saying, when he's retelling something that God told him to say, after the 40 years of marching, or 38 years of marching is over. And he, um, it's a slightly different word for the word say, and according to Rashi, it carries with it this almost this idea of like a, um, like a friendliness. It's like a, but that word is not, and the, the implication to Rashi is that the word is not used prior to that. Like it's during the time when Israel is not in a good place with God, God God's relationship with Moses is different too. The way that God speaks with him, and the point that Rashi's saying is that Moses, as the prophet of God, the only reason he has this, this connection to God as prophecy is for the benefit of the people. And if the people are not in a good place for it, then the relationship between Moses and God, that, that prophetic relationship, is not the same because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a tool that God's using with Moses. He's using Moses to speak to the people. It's not for Moses' benefit. It's not just to make him feel good or whatever. It's specifically for him to be used by God. Um, Another interesting thing about uh, about him, he, he speaks to them. He gives them, uh, according to the traditions, he gives them sort of like a veiled critique at the beginning. Um, there's a couple of different locations that get listed here, and the sages say, Laban, Laban's not even, Laban, that's not even a location. We don't have any idea where this is. This is a comment about the manna, which was white, because they complained about the manna. So there's supposedly like a veiled critique about some things they did wrong there. And I think it was so interesting that, you know, the Haftarah really picks up on this. The Haftar in Isaiah chapter 1 is really, the, it's, it's a critique from God. Um, as we said earlier, we're getting ready for the High Holy Days, and this is the end of the three weeks. This is the end of the time that we mourn and we remember the things we did wrong and the, and the separation we have with, from God until um, hopefully we're praying that God will come back and restore the temple and, and return his presence to us. And, um, and now is the time really for those rebukes and critiques and whatever else. Because very soon, we're going to enter a new stage, this, the, the weeks of consolation, uh, where we will remember, reminded how much God loves us. Amen. Because we're going to get ready to get into the high holy days for kind of that final push for repentance and forgiveness. Um, and as a reminder, that, that the relationship with God is not meant to be one of critique and brokenness. And, uh, there's, some, there's some in the religious world that sort of always see God as kind of mad at us. That's not a state that God likes to be in. <laughs> it's not a state that we should live in. Um, it should be, God forbid, really, but if it does happen, it should be short-lived to bring us to repentance. Mm-hmm. The, the, the general state to live in should be one of, of intimacy and closeness with God where the relationship with God is good and our obedience to him um, is driving that. Rashi says that Moses doesn't mention their sins directly, but the place where they did them. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've got all these places. There was a Rabbi Kaplan was picking up on the words spoke to all the Jewish people and kind of wondering, like, what would have been a sin that everyone would have committed? Mm-hmm. You know, like, across the board. And so he's kind of going through some of them, like, stealing. And there's probably some people you could find in the camp that hadn't done some of these things. So he really... Uh, some of the commentary that he was quoting was saying how the only sin that pretty much everyone has done at some point in their life is a version of Lashon Hara called Avak Lashon Hara, which is the dust of evil speech. It's like the stuff that's maybe not punishable evil speech, but that came way too close for comfort. Mm-hmm. And he, he points out that this week's portion starts with Ele, which is 
Aleph Lamed Hey, which is the, the acronym of Amak Lashon how This is the sin that everyone committed that Ramosha is rebuking at this point. Hmm. That's cool. Like that. Another thing Farashi points out, uh, he notes in chapter one here, um, <clears throat> Moses says, I, 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 can't, I can't judge you on my own. And Rashi's commentary says, wait a minute, we're talking about the guy who split the Red Sea, who brought down the Torah. It's like, he can't judge Israel? Like, I mean, he's, you know, he's Superman, right? And, uh, and commentary, then he goes on to say, well, and Solomon says the same thing, you know, how, you know how, who, can, who can judge the people of Israel? He has some sort of quote, I can't recall off the top of my head right now what it was. Um, and again, it's like Solomon's the wisest man ever. What's he talking about? Can't judge the people of Israel. And the reason they say is because God, uh, being a judge of Israel, is very difficult. And it's not because the people are difficult. It's because God assigns punishment to the judges if they judge poorly. The point being that the judges of the other, other nations, so to speak, the, the heathen, you know, if they, do it, if they make a bad decision, oops, oh well. But it's kind of really on everybody else for doing something wrong. But the judges of Israel have a responsibility to teach them the right way, to correct them the right way, to, Im to impose righteous judgment. And if they do that poorly, if they lead the nation astray, God holds them accountable, not the people. And this goes right back to what we see in the book of James, in chapter 1. God, he says, don't be, don't, don't, or chapter 3, excuse me, don't, um, don't want to be many teachers, right? Teaching is dangerous, because if you speak incorrectly and lead people to do that's wrong, then that's on you, that's not on them. And we see this over and over again. In fact, even even to the commentary we talked about earlier, Yeshua's words against the the, the, the hypocritical Pharisees, I should say, so that wasn't against all of them, um, is in large part because they were the leaders. And his critiques over and over again about certain groups are almost entirely directed at leadership. Um, because his, his focus was, um, you are responsible as leaders, as the shepherds, as the teachers. You should know better. Other people... Um, below you so to speak that they get a pass per se but you know they're they're acting on a faith in someone and the people who are leading them it's a much bigger deal in fact uh, it reminds me again of Yeshua's other words he talks about you know if you lead a child astray it's just better that you you know get thrown into the millstone. the sea of Galilee with a millstone tied around your neck because it's a big deal to lead someone to do something wrong and I uh, you think about it's, it's parents or as leaders in your community, or leaders amongst your friends, or whatever the case may be, um, that holds us to a higher standard. We are expected to be um, even even better, so to speak. Um, and uh, <clears throat> uh, it kind of reminds me, um, at work, you know, Mr. Martin works in compliance, and he made a point on Fridays to still dress work casual, business casual. Um, and, the, and rather than wear the jeans and the t-shirts that, you know, are permitted. Um, and not that it would be a problem if he did that. But the intent behind that, it was explained to me, is it is about an appearance. He wants to continue to convey, I have responsibility, I have leadership, I have authority, I have, I'm someone you can trust, I'm someone that you can go to, um, that you should respect, because I have, and it's because of his role. And I think that that's something you kind of get, kind of in general, by this, this principle. It's like those of us who are, um, followers of Yeshua, especially those of us who are who are studiers. I would hope everyone in this room, if they're not already, is going to be something of a teacher. Um, you know, I I think that I think that the, that's not too high a bar for people here. 
Um, right, a lot of teachers in this room. There are already teachers. Yeah, absolutely. I don't mean to say that. Absolutely, there are lots of teachers already in this room. I mean, I'm I'm surrounded by um, my my dad and my father-in-law who've been teaching for many, many, many years. So um, you have, uh, but that means that there's a higher standard, and that means that we have expectations that are higher, and uh, and we have to strive to meet them. As we see, even with Moses, I mean, Moses comments in this passage passage about how he gets held. To a very high standard with the strike of the rock, and he's not permitted to go into the land. That, you know, it's one one time. It wasn't like he was the one saying that you know God hates us and wants to kill us, but God held him sort of to the same the same punishment as the other people of Israel, uh, who had a much uh, stronger um, error. That's an interesting statement. He says the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying even you shall not go in there. Actually, because God says that. He says the people will, the people will profane my name because of what you've done. Right, and that's the point. Yeah, because so, he's he's providing a bad example. He's leading them in the wrong direction, even by just the things that he does. Um, that's the same thing that makes a bad dad. Right, absolutely. Um, in fact, it's interesting. It, I, I think I actually think I'd be curious if you would did any kind of studies. I don't have any statistics in front of me, but it'd be very interesting to see studies of presidents of the United States and their foibles and what that has meant for the country and wondering if certain activities possibly increase during those times. I was very young, so I don't know a whole lot, but it feels like immorality became a whole lot more accepted after Bill Clinton was president. <laughs> I could be wrong. Um, you know, nowadays it feels like uh, whatever prior um, pretense we, or pretend, uh, uh, attempt at civility we had on Twitter is completely lost. So you kind of have, um, I feel like, because again, it's leadership. It's not to say that the things that people do who are the leaders are any worse than what other people are doing, but they set the standard. And they set not, the bar. And it's not to, to disregard the people's propensity to sin. What, what it is is we want, we want permission to sin. Right. And by finding an example who was an upholder, especially an upholder of a of a laudable position with um, Josh Harris comes to mind recently. It's like, you know, here's here's someone who comes up with a laudable example of, of purity or whatever else, you know, and not only to find out that he's that he's thrown that aside, but thrown all restraint aside and denies God. That, those kind of things uh, bring horror to those of us who still believe in the standard. Mm -hmm. But many people are delighted in it. Absolutely. They love it when the righteous fall. Because gives an excuse. They got an excuse. It can't be done, and it was wrong to try in the first place. You should never have even said those things. Yeah. Well, and the irony here is um, that's actually exactly why one of the reasons why the sages teach that Joshua was the better leader for people of Israel to go into the land. They say that Moses was uh, the Superman. He was invincible. He was amazing, and he was a really high standard. And people tended to feel intimidated by that, almost like they couldn't reach that standard. But as uh, Rabbi Gimpel was talking about and kind of recapping some of the sages' comments on this, Joshua was not as great, but ironically enough, that made him perfect for them because he was a righteous man, but he was a normal man. And he allowed that, he, he embodied that godliness within sort of a, just sort of an average, average Joe kind of person. And that made other people realize, I can do that too. And I think the best example of that today is watching little children. If you have multiple children in your family, it's amazing to watch your second or third watching the oldest. Emulate. 
Um, I mean, and, and, and sometimes, although maybe not every time, but sometimes you'll see even that the younger ones end up growing up faster, which is weird because you think to yourself, well, but the, the child, the firstborn, he's watching us all the time. He's got one on, you know, one on two parenting all the time. You'd think that he'd be, you know, he's seeing it done the right way re regularly. And yet, somehow, having someone who's closer to your level is easier to emulate. And, um, and I think that also speaks volumes to being, being a leader in today's world because um, I can't speak for other people's room. I know myself. I sometimes feel very much like a, a Noah. I'm righteous in today's generation. You know, I'm not, I'm not, the, uh, I'm not, I'm not these, these incredible sages you've got, you know, historical, uh, if you were to go around the wall and start naming them off. Um, I'm, not, I'm not Yeshua and his disciples. But it's like, maybe that's a good thing sometimes. Maybe it's good to just be me. And then to, but to be the best me that can be serving God to be an example to others, to be inspired, hopefully, to want to do that too, to say, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Makes you want to join the army, doesn't it? <laughs> be all that you can be. It's good. It's good stuff. Um, one of the things that, uh, oh, we get ready for Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av on Sunday, tomorrow. Um, it's actually a day, but we're marking it tomorrow. Um, the uh, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Katz had a really interesting commentary this week on talking about Tisha B'Av. Um, and he said that uh, he was talking about people who um, have a problem with themselves. They, they see their lives as, he called it not beautiful, but basically they're, they're very disgruntled and they're discontent and, they're, and they sort of, and they, and they feel badly about themselves. I guess they feel badly about their own lives. And, and he said these people add a because they called it a 14th attribute to God. Now, if you've, if you've gone through the uh, Yom Kippur prayers in the past or prayed through some of the fasting prayers of the last few weeks, um, you know that there is a listing of 13 attributes of mercy. These come from the Torah. God himself lists them first. Moses then copies them later. Um, and so we pray these to God and asking for forgiveness. We recognize that God is merciful and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and, and so on and so forth. Rabbi Katz was saying that but these people who have like a negative view of themselves, uh, they, they see, they blame God. And they had a 14th attribute. And that 14th attribute is revenge. And they see God as a vengeful God. Not as a God, as a just God, but as a God who just has it out for them. And their lives are hard. And it's not their fault. But life is hard. And he said the first Tishbab, first Tishbab is recounted in this week's Torah portion. That's exactly what the children of Israel say. When they go into the land and they refuse to go in because it's spies, they say, God, God hates us. God, drag us out of Egypt just to kill us here. And they actually use the phrase, God hates us. And that language, I think, is something that is, it can be very easy to fall into. You know, you have, you have experiences that are difficult or hard or sad, or maybe you have, you're disappointed in something that's been, you wanted in life, it hasn't happened, and you feel like, well, like, you know, if you've tried to make changes and they haven't worked, or whatever it might be, and in the end, it's like you just you give up and you decide, you know what, the real problem is it's God. God hates me. I can't figure out what else. And uh, it's so interesting reading through um, Rabbi Foreman's The Beast That Crouches at the Door. It's a recounting of the stories in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis. And he has an interesting commentary on Cain. And his view is that Cain's problem, uh, essentially, is a relationship with God problem. He's mad at God. God has not accepted his offering. The relationship with God is broken. But because he can't really attack God, 
he vents that anger towards Abel. And I, I couldn't help but think about some of these horrific shootings that took place last weekend. I heard a story about one of the shooters, I can't remember who it was now, picked on in school or something like that. And you just, you kind of can only imagine that some of these people, they have hard lives, things don't go the way they wanted, and they have all this anger. And it doesn't have anywhere to go. They don't blame themselves. It's not their fault, supposedly. I mean, it probably is, but it's, in their minds it's not. And they have to put it somewhere because you can't just let that boil inside. And so eventually they pick a victim, an innocent victim who has nothing to do with any of the problems in their lives, but it's their fault. And if only they weren't in the world, I would be happier. I would be okay. And, um, and I think that's exactly what's happening here. The people of Israel, it's, it's obviously God doesn't hate them. God didn't drag them out of... He didn't do 10 plagues in Egypt, part the Red Sea, to get them all the way to Canaan to let them die. I mean, that's just, that's just silly. Like, there's no way. But because the people of Israel are afraid, and, and to my dad's comment earlier, they needed an excuse. They needed a reason, a justification for how they were feeling. They vented it towards God, and they said, God hates us. Which he doesn't. Which he, of course, doesn't. <laughs> Obviously not. And the irony is, the irony is that, that Moses then um, follows up with is like, you were afraid that God doesn't love you, and so God would not take care of your families. But he's going to instead take care of your families without you. You thought you had to save them, but you just totally misunderstood the whole point. God's the one who takes care of everything. God's going to take care of them. God's going to provide for them. Um, they're not. They're going to go in the land. You won't. There's an interesting little midrash about uh, the giant in this in this week's Torah portion, Og, Og, king of Bashan. They call him the last of the Rephaim. Uh, and the sages, because the sages are really good, before we had computers, they knew how to go, wait, Rephaim, I've heard that term before. And they go back, and you go back to the beginning of Genesis, uh, I think it's chapter 15, Abraham, uh, there's a battle that takes place. And a group of uh, kings, led by Chedar Leomer, uh, go and uh, crush a rebellion in the land of Canaan. And along the way, it says that they, they, they crush or they destroy the Rephaim uh, that are in Canaan. And these are giants. There is a survivor from the battle uh, when, they, when they go on down to Sodom and Gomorrah and also crush that, uh, destroy those cities and capture Lot. A survivor comes and, and goes and tells Abraham. Well, the Midrash teaches the survivor is Oak. He's the last of the Rephaim, the last giant to escape the battle. He's the survivor. He runs and finds Abraham and tells Abraham that Lot's been taken. According to the Midrash, this is why Moses was a little afraid of Og. Not because Og was a giant. Big deal. Pfft. Who cares? He was more concerned about the fact that he'd done something good. And he was afraid, like, oh, well, you know, sure, we can wipe out all these, you know, awful, horrible heathens in the land of Canaan, but he actually helped Abraham save Lot, whether it was well-intentioned or not. And what happens if, you know, because of that, he's, he's not going to be easily beaten? What if, you know, maybe God won't let us beat him? Um, God has already told him not to bother the, uh, the Edomites and the Moabites, so he's a little, he's a little afraid, and God, God makes it clear, don't worry about it. So but, how old is this all? It's like 400 years old. 400 years old, <laughs> at least, right? At least. He's not just tall. <laughs> If the guy's in an iron bed because mm -hmm. he can't lay down in wood, 
I'm okay with believing he could also be very old. He's a troll. He's a troll. A troll. That's right. And Og is a great name for a troll. It's perfect. Og the troll. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they, they, uh, but isn't it great how God like uses that to prepare the people for life after Moses, right? At the end of this portion, right? We can skip around, by the way. If we have something to bring up, please do. The end of this portion, Joshua, he tells Moses tells Joshua, "Don't be afraid." And it's not because God that we know ethereally that we haven't really seen. We have all these promises. It's not because of that that you shouldn't be afraid. He actually is so kind and kind to us to give us tangible examples of his goodness that he tells Joshua, you saw what God did to those kings. That's going to do the same thing for you in the land of Canaan. And this idea, I've heard elsewhere, other teachings on this idea, that it's good to mark the good things in your life from God. To remember the good things in your life when you're, especially when you're telling something that's difficult. To realize, oh, God did that for me. Why would God not be with me now? And um, and that's kind of what we have here. So Og is this giant, and he leads an, uh, an impressive army. Um, Sihon was also apparently a very good general, um, a king, and his army. And the Israelites had no problem beating both of them. And that is supposed to survive, uh, uh, serve as inspiration that they're going to be okay when they go into the land of Canaan. I noticed when I was reading through this portion this week how right before the account of Sihon and Og that Moses tells the people, and God spoke to Moses and said, tell them, I did these things for the sons of Ammon and the sons of Edom, and they had already done what Israel was about to do. God, right. I gave this land to them, and I gave this land to the others, and you're not to take it from them because I made a promise with the other people. And so, like you're saying, it's an example to show them God was faithful to even Edom right. and even the Ammonites, and he's going to be faithful to you, too. That's a great point. A great reminder. We saw that, too, and it occurred to me that God seems to be inserting himself into the affairs of other people besides the Jews. You mean God cares about the affairs of men? God, <laughs> yeah. And evidently is expecting proper behavior. Because if the behavior doesn't line up, he brings somebody else in to kick butt, clean out the pool. Well, I think, that, I think what you see in human history are many, many examples of, of God's patience and God's justice. And that over and over and over again, you have examples of, of God, I agree with you. I think that God, God is God inserts himself very intentionally. He uses um, kingdoms and the rise and fall of kingdoms to achieve his ends, yeah. and he sometimes blesses those kingdoms, especially when they do good. You know, even even when they do something that might might be unpleasant, like the Babylonians creating the exile for Israel. God used them for that. Sure. However, to your point, God also has a standard for them too. And if they don't meet it, the difference between Israel and the nations, Israel gets punished much more quickly. The t punishment comes fast, usually, relatively fast. And, but the difference is that the punishment is, is never decisive. The punishment is always, um, it's always, it's always, a, it's, a, it's a measure. It's a measure to punishment. When punishment comes on the nations, they've usually been storing it up long enough that that's the end. 
Nineveh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Babylonian kingdom, the Egyptian kingdom, really, think about it the way that it is today, um, the, uh, the Persian kingdom, the Romans, I mean, all of these, these, these incredibly powerful and impressive civilizations mm -hmm. are literally gone. Great Britain. Um, yeah, to some degree, yeah. It, it, and if it wasn't uh, already uh, tottering, it's, it's, on the, it's on the verge of not being so great anymore. Um, so you have all of these things, and, and even I think about even like uh, you know, in more modern times, Nazi Germany. You know, the Nazis, um, Germans, at one point in time, uh, from what I, if I recall correctly, were actually friendly to the Jews, good place for Jews to live. As that had changed, and the anti-Semitism got to the point of the Holocaust, um, I personally believe that the Cold War, a lot of it was retribution from God. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a uh, if you think about it, Germany was literally cut in half by the Soviets and the West. Um, their capital city was cut in half. Families were split apart. Um, uh, the, uh, the, that's on top of the amount of damage that was done to them during World War II. And as a nation, they were set back literally generations. And if you think about that, I think that that is um, just an example of the fact that you're right. God has a standard for nations as well. And not just, and that's a scary thing, I think, for us. I think that a lot of what has kept Erica um, in the grace of God has been uh, people like those in this room. You know, I think God told Moses, Abraham, hey, there's 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll spare them. But um, there is a level, there's a measure. And at some point you fill that cup too high and, uh, and punishment <laughs> usually comes very quickly and it's usually very decisive. Um, yeah, this, uh, this week's portion of talking about God asserting himself in the affairs of men. There's a really funny historical thing. So one of the kings that gets referenced here is the Kaftorites from Kaftor go to Gaza, which sounds like a really, really irrelevant comment. These are not even the Edomites, the Moabites. We don't even know who these people are. Two quick things. First, the sages point out this is very helpful to the people of Israel because we have a small problem with conquering the entire land of Israel. And that is the fact that Abraham made a covenant with the Philistines. So Abraham had a deal with Abimelech, and his son Isaac reinforced the deal. That they it's a, it's a generational deal. It wasn't a one-time thing. That they would not attack one another. It's a bit of a problem when Abraham's ancestors want to come into the land and wipe out all those people and take their land. But that land belongs to Israel. So it's like, how do you figure this out? So instead, this foreign invading force comes into Gaza after Abraham's covenant, wipes out and or subsumes the people who live there. Now we have a new nation, and there's no covenant in place, and, you, you know... You can take them out. You can take them out. Bye. Uh, which is interesting enough, just recently, a group of geneticists proved that this happened. There is a, There are bones, very, very old bones and things, from in... Um, in that region of Israel, in like the Gaza, Ashkelon, actually I guess it's more Ashkelon now and, and so forth, not Gaza, because that's not a place we want to go, but um, in Ashkelon area, if I remember correctly, and, or Ashdod, and they, uh, and they showed that there's a split in the, the genomes uh, uh, for the people groups. There's a, this, that the genes actually seem to change. There seems to be like a foreigner who inserts himself here, mm -hmm. that there's some people who don't match, and the people who don't match, oddly enough, have European genome markers. So there's this in foreign invader comes in, takes over, 
and eventually does kind of assimilate with the people there to some degree. I mean, so, I guess it kind of subsumes them. But it's exactly what we see in the Bible. This, of course it really happened, but it always is cool to me when archaeology and science actually prove that it did. Very cool. I was thinking while you're talking about Habakkuk, when all this judgment is coming on the people, and I love the prayer of Habakkuk where he says, "Oh Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. The Lord revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make it known, and wrath remember mercy." And I think that's something that we always see that, that there is always mercy in what He does, even when He has to judge us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God's not, um, God is somehow able to be one always. So he's not someone who shifts from anger to compassion. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, he's someone who is perfect at all times. The uh, last week's portion, or the week before, um, that we read here in uh, 3.12 about uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Adam. Hmm. And uh, there's Rabbi Foreman that was pointing out well, I should never asked for it. <laughs> right? Do I have to stay here? Reuben and Gad asked for it. They had a lot of, a lot of cattle. But Manasseh never did. And uh, he ties some cool stuff together, but um, when you consider that the whole Joseph story and keeping the brothers together and whatnot, and having a little bit of Joseph on that side of the river and a little mm -hmm. bit of Joseph on this side, it just it just really plays nicely, and it makes you want to go back and read. And sure enough, he's right. Manasseh never asked for it. He said, "Okay, you guys and you guys and half of you guys," <laughs> and and pretty much it's a huge them. swath of land too. Yeah. Much bigger than anybody else got. You need to, you need to, you need to be over there too. And they, to their credit, they did. So, and they, uh, and well, the funny thing was that they, they didn't have it easy either. You the story. It's, it's like, so Gad and Reuben, we conquered the kingdoms right. of Bashan and and, and uh, Og and Sihon, and we there's a lot of land here. We got a lot of cattle. Let's stay here. And then they says, okay, I'll give the half this other part to the half tribe of Manasseh. And, they said, and then Manasseh went out and conquered all these other people. And it's like. Oh, so that wasn't actually taken yet. They had to go and earn that one. Um, but yeah, that, the, the eagerness there. I think that the other thing I've heard too is that, they, that Moses wanted a good influence yeah. on that side. Because Manasseh, of course, being, being the son of Joseph, the tribe embodied this love of the land of Israel. You know, Gad and Reuben, there's a little bit of anxiety here that maybe they're not really into the whole land of Israel thing. <laughs> they wanted to stay on this side. It's like, why didn't you want to go in? That wasn't good enough for you or something. Are you going to give up now? And so Moses is afraid that he's going to do it all over. We already did 38 years. We can't do another 38. So um, it's like he, he, he specifically takes the group from the same family. I mean, Joseph's the one who said, yeah, bring my bones back. And I can't go now. But 400 years from now, when you leave, take me with you. And so that spirit is in his children. Yeah. And you know that it's in his children because the daughters of Zelophehad, which you also read about in last week's portion, they're from that tribe. They're the ones saying, hey, it's not fair. We're, we're, we're daughters. We deserve a part of land, too. Um, because we don't have, there's no sons to our father's name. And that, um, that spirit, I think it's like, and so it's kind of like, uh, I've heard stories in your household from my wife 
that sometimes it'd be like, so and so's, you know, got some rough edges. We got, we're gonna take this sister who really clean, and we're gonna have them live with this sister who's not so clean, and hopefully that'll rub off, you know. Orderly is probably better. Yeah, something like that. Yes, we did rotate bedrooms. Sure. Well, I'm glad names weren't named. <laughs> TMI. Yeah, clean is not good. Orderly. Orderly, okay, fine. <laughs> Organized, maybe. That's it. That's it. Everybody was clean. <laughs> Just to settle it. <laughs> the cleanest. Sorry, that's not what I meant. And some of us were organized. Yes. I don't know a single one from your mother's family that is not organized. My point was just to say that you can you can influence other people and Absolutely. use that influence. We had boys. They're not always. Yeah. <laughs> no, we didn't live together. Maybe that would have changed it. If we shared the same room, then maybe that would have been. So like, we decided one of them should marry one of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's worked out really well. Amen. <laughs> Apparently, there is some osmosis. There's hope for the grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we uh, you have, but no, just saying that that seems what Moses is doing. He's taking the yeah. tribe of Manasseh and put them over here in an effort to be a good influence. Um, it's a dangerous proposition, though, and that's, I think it's one you know the good the bad company corrupts good morals is actually a, a more powerful component because they do point out that Gad and Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh are the first ones taken in exile. Yeah. So it's like there's like yes, that's good, but the person who's good has to be really strong. Um, the young men right now, I've just started a study on Tuesday nights, well, young men, I said the men, but we're particularly thinking about the young men who are getting ready to have to defend their faith possibly for the first time, um, talking about things that we believe and why, and defending that, and how you argue that, and how you, and you support that, and how you respond to people who disagree, or who want to challenge that, or want to tear it down. And um, and I think that that's, that's a really important because you have to be really, really strong when you step into an environment of people who don't hostile believe in God. It's hostile, very hostile. hostile I mean, um, I mean, it's 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 really frightening the the stage that we've gotten to now. Um, this and, week is feminism and patriarchy. Right. Um, and and I think that if you if you look at the um, if you look at the world we live in, especially in this country, the whether it's universities or colleges, whether it's school, whether it's workforce even. I mean, I, I, uh, let's just say that the, um, uh, I won't say that I learned new words, but I had never heard quite so many until I got into the workforce. And it was like, whoa, okay. I wouldn't have expected that here. That's not, that's not. not <laughs> you should work for an airline. Shocker. I know. And that has changed since I started working at Wells Fargo. That's really, that's a lot better. Uh, this, I very rarely hear anything there, but I'm talking about like in prior roles, uh, prior companies, and thinking about like you have to be strong enough to deal with that. You know, you have to be strong enough to know what you believe, to know how to defend it, to know how to defend it to yourself even, even internally, um, and not be swayed. And I think that's that's the, sort of the sad story of the half tribe of Menashe. Um, it doesn't seem that they were quite up to the task to steer the other two tribes in the right direction. Um, and that's, I think, it's a, it's a small warning. Even though I still think the Hatcher and Ashe are awesome. They didn't argue. They didn't. They didn't say, 
No, 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 no. I think I think we stay on this side. Thanks anyway. Thanks anyway. But you know, I think with it, that same story uh, Moses retells it here. Or has, I can't help but like think about um, the importance of family, because Gad and Reuben they end up becoming the first tribes taken in exile. And they're the ones who spent literally like fourteen years away from their families mm-hmm. to go help fight. Help fight, and that was their deal, right? It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. They were forced to. It was their deal. They 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 wanted to have their their inheritance now. As a result of that, they had to leave their families behind and go fight with the rest of them. Now, there's nobility there, absolutely, and not to say that they're and that and Moses to say that's wrong. Moses requires it of them. But I think it's one of those things that you kind of have to kind of keep in the back of your mind, especially, you know, whether, um, in whatever role you have, um, you know, other things, like, uh, it, whether it's how you work, how many hours you work, how you, what you spend your time with your kids, how you, what time you spend with your kids when you're with your kids, whether it's when I send your kids to school, whether it's to, you know, I mean, I think that's, you know, one thing that my parents really didn't want to do was send us away. They kept us at home. And I think our relationship with our parents is fantastic. And a large part of that is the fact that we live with them all the time. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think that that's... But I, so I go back to say, I don't necessarily say that any of the things that take you away from your family are necessarily inherently wrong. I don't think, like I said, I don't think Moses says this is wrong. But there's a cost. And I think that that cost is borne out in kind of the long-term range here, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, I hear stories sometimes about people who, you know, to take that big promotion, they have to move to New York while their family still lives halfway across the country. And it's like, well, I, I couldn't do that. That's not how I want my family to work. I know. Um, that would be really rough to not see them at all, like basically ever, except on very rare occasions or, you know, holidays or maybe for part of a weekend or whatever it is. Um, that'd be very hard. Um, so I think that that's... But that's not, I said, it's not wrong, but I think it's something you have to count the cost. Agreed. But I, I do think that the tendency of the people and the tendency of all people is to fall away. So I, I don't think we should just try and give them an out because they were away for a while. The tendency of people is to mm. fall away. And You're right. And, and ultimately, the rest of the tribes follow suit. Exactly. So um, bottom line... We need to learn from their mistake and constantly chew up our course and study work do all the right things. Right, and to that point, I mean, work is still good. Yeah. I think that you know sometimes yeah. you can get you get depending on which uh, uh, who you're reading. Sometimes you can kind of feel like, oh, well, we surely shouldn't be working. Spend all your time teaching your kids, or all your time reading the Bible. Um, because so that's where you're really supposed to be. Top along. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, that's not okay either. Exactly. Because God put us here to work. God put us here to, uh, to partner with him in creation. Amen. Um, I am, uh, but I have to say, I, I get very excited when it's the other day and I get to go home and see my kids. <laughs> so my, my Bible says that there's two prohibitions in this whole deal here. There's two. Two, not to appoint a judge who is not learned in the laws of the Torah, even though he's learned in other areas. Okay. And second, that a judge should not fear an evil man at trial. Okay. And we're running out of we're, we're running out of pages to have you know to get to six thirteen here. 
<laughs> well, he packs it in. Yeah. Uh, towards the end. But, there. but most of these we will have seen already, True. right? So we're just reiterating. Right, right. But it's like, I think the next portion is like top shelf here. Mm, yeah. Starting right. Deuteronomy 4, yeah. 6, all that good just stuff. Just a big love Lord yeah, God yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, I thought it was interesting too that the listing of how to pick out judges, they were wise, they're understanding. Um, there's some other one too. They, they want to marry these guys. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. I thought to myself, this is what every father should be, father, future father in law should be looking for in a son in law. You know, he's, because if you look at them, what, the, what they, they interpret some of them, they're like, it's not, to be understanding is to comprehend something, but to, or to be wise is to comprehend something, to be understanding is to know, like, how to apply it, or how to teach it, or something along those lines. And so it's like, to, to know, like, to really know it, you know, not just to kind of know about it. And um, I thought to myself, looking through this, it's like, wow, that does, what a great approach to it. And, and, they, and they said that, the sages comment on this, that, um, I think it's in Rashi's commentary. If I recall correctly, it's like they, they, they can see this thing, right? People knew these people were this way. They knew that about them. Because these men acted like this, and other people could see that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that's kind of, um, that. I think that kind of goes into uh, one of the things you think about with the, with the spouse, those who are not married on, online or in the room, um, that what you see way more important than what you hear. <laughs> you know, we live in a world that weirdly enough values people's speech more than their actions. Which to me does not make any sense at all. It's very easy to say nice and lovely things. It's way harder to do them. But for some reason, we are much more concerned about do you say things the right way than whether or not you act the right way. Um, but when you're talking about appointing leaders, or judges, or talking about finding a spouse, actions are really the only thing that really matters. Because especially if there's the rose-colored glasses of attraction, people say anything that comes in their heads. Anything that they need to say, they can say. But how do they demonstrate that? Does the, does the young, young man say he wants kids, or does he actually play with you know the nieces and nephews? Uh, Mr. Peter, in his uh, line by the commentary, rational Bible talks about the very thing when uh, Abraham's servant is looking for a wife, Isaac. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, what a great and, example. And the whole deal is, what is she going to do? Right. And uh, he, he, he just lays that out big time. And, and his summary was, if, if you want to know someone's character, watch how they treat strangers. Mm, yeah. And I thought, wow, oh, that's not good. Because he was a stranger. She also was very kind to his animals. Right. Another thing he says you should watch for. Absolutely. I've heard an executive recruiting tactic is taking candidate out to see how they interact with the wait staff. That's right. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's creative. Yeah. She knows no strangers. She gets everyone's life story. Every waiter, every waiter. <laughs> yeah, that was when I was, um, before I started dating Juliana, I noticed things in her life, things that she was doing. Um, and it's like, ooh, I like that. And then to do with the things that she was saying, we already had like a good rapport. We could talk very easily. 
that was very important to me too. But the clincher for me was really watching her and realizing she's expressing the desire to learn and grow and to become a better person. And she's she's um, she's doing that without like an incentive, right? There's not like um, there's not a particular reason for doing it. And it's like that's what I want because someone who's willing to mature or to continue to get closer to God, that's really what we're after. We're not starting off perfect. But that's where that's what we're aiming for. Yeah. I wonder if she's listening online. Uh, we'll have to tell her later. Well, let's let's um, just wait and see what happens when you walk in the door. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul uses these words that pretty close are all the levels. He says in Philippians and in Colossians. He says, I pray your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent. You may be sincere without offense. And then in Colossians, he says, I ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, uh, pleasing in every good work, and the knowledge of God. And years ago, I did a study on that. And it basically is, it's learning what the word says so that you know it. Wisdom, it's knowledge. And then wisdom is knowing how to use it. And then discernment is knowing when to use it. And so what Paul is saying is that whole picture of taking the word of God, knowing it, but not just knowing it, but knowing how to apply it and when to use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the sages even commented this, this week's portion, I think it's this week's portion, Rashi commentary, that uh, a man who learns and, is it this week's? Anyway, learns and doesn't teach. No, it was actually in the Rabbi Foreman's book. Right. He was commenting on that. Is it quoting from a, from a Midrash, um, or from a, from a Talmud reference? It's, it's really wrong for a man to learn and not teach. And the reason he's saying that is because if you're really learning, eventually you'll get so full, you'll have to share it. Like, it should just sort of flow out of you because this is such a big part of your life. If that's not happening, then maybe the learning isn't so good after all. Yeah, maybe something's wrong with that learning. That's not to say that you... I'm not teaching, I want to clarify. I said this earlier. Teaching is not just sitting in front of a group expounding. Teaching is... Um, it can be a small comment to someone. It can be in a conversation with a friend. It can be sharing something you've learned this week. It can be making a comment in this room. It could be walking the walk. It could be walking the walk. Well, I think it's somewhat verbal, at least. But maybe, uh, it, but teaching is part of that. When we walk the walk, the scripture says that people will ask us. Right. For an account of the whole yeah. Why are you doing that? Clarifying. And, that's, a, and that's in this portion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, it's, you know, my, my dad sitting down with me and telling me Bible stories at night, and, you know. It's, uh, it's those kind of things, and it's not, it doesn't have to be so formal. Um, but it should be happening. And it will. If you're filled up with it, you can't stop. It just comes out as part of, of your talk and your walk in your life. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that, like, um, I heard as well. This idea that you you put out what you take in. If you spend all your time reading things that don't matter, that's what you're going to talk about. So it's important to you. If you spend your time reading things that are interesting and, and helpful or beneficial or good or godly or whatever, that's going to be what comes out. That's what you're going to share. And, and I do find that to be true. I mean, like, I you know, you only have so much time in the day, and it's like, um, you know, if I'm if I spend my time reading. Uh, news. I talk about news. Spend my time reading 
commentary of the Bible, I think that that, that tends to kind of leach out. You know, you start sharing it because you're reading about it. Right. Um, I'm reading about sports news. Well, I don't have anyone to talk to about, about that, but if I did... <laughs> It depends on what season it is. Richard's right. coming along. Yeah, Richard's coming along. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, no, Juliana very graciously uh, watches football with me, which is which is a big deal because that's not something she grew up with, but I appreciate <laughs> it very much. She's actually learned all the rules and everything. It's good for her. Of course she did. Of course she did, right. I was really impressed this week. I was telling you I follow this guy on LinkedIn. He's the owner of Movement Mortgage. He was a former uh, Panther player, Casey Crawford. And he... Was I mean, LinkedIn? I mean, he's got tens of thousands of people that are following him, and he is the CEO of this big company. A lot of people look to him, and he was just so open about his faith and the fact that every morning he and his leaders study the scriptures. And he specifically called out they were studying the story of Joseph, and it was a couple posts before that that he was sharing. They were breaking records left and right, had the most amount of sales. All of their loan officers and all their processors are just constantly breaking records and business is booming right now. And he publicly, to everyone and to his company, said, we need to learn from the story of Joseph. And right now is when we need to start storing up. And we're going to be encouraging everyone to be saving, encouraging everyone. And it was just like, I've never heard that from people that I've followed in business before, to like take a biblical principle and be insightful about it, obviously learn and internalize it, but then teach it to his entire company and encourage everyone to begin saving, including the company itself. But I, it was really impressive that uh, to see someone that way. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great example. And really, if you think about it, it's what this whole Torah portion kind of is, right? Moses isn't telling them, here are all the things that you did you probably shouldn't do again. Mm-hmm. He's saying, here are all the things that have happened to us over the last 38 years a lot of you maybe not even been there when these were happening. You should be aware, mm-hmm. because you need to learn from the mistakes that the prior generations, and you need to do it better that's this right. time. Exactly. And I think that's kind of um, that's exactly what Paul says in, in Corinthians about the Torah. He says there are examples for us that we can learn, we can grow, we can do better. Well, and I think that this portion is filled with both. Right? It's like there's times when things where God did something miraculous. God did. God rescued them. Their name, became, their name became feared among the people. There's like quotes like that, but then there's also the mistakes that they made. And that's like the balance of our lives. When we're feeling a little too good about ourselves, it's a good time to be re- reminded of our tendencies and how the children of Israel made plenty of mistakes when they were feeling too good about themselves. But then when we're feeling a little dumb on ourselves or think that maybe God doesn't, isn't paying attention to us or whatever, there's those stories as well to be reminded of his love for his people and his interaction with us on a daily basis. Absolutely. And it's almost kind of funny the way that Moses does this. He starts off with all the negative stuff, and then he ends with all the positive things. It's almost kind of like, well, we got that out of the way. And before you think, you know, too bad, too badly, you want to make sure you know, this is God really does love you. He's going to take care of you. Um, Right, right, and I think that um, an understanding that is very powerful because it's not 
we don't we shouldn't be walking around beating ourselves up thinking about all the bad things we did and so on and so forth we should walk around realizing how much everything is a gift from god and i think about um uh you're talking about remembering all the things you did wrong and this reminds me of the sin of the golden calf we had the six remembrances that we're supposed to remember um and the commentary from the sages on that was so cool uh, and, and other commentaries that I read about that whole idea that you remember the sin but it wasn't just the sin you remember remember also the forgiveness and you know if you think about it that's kind of like an implied reality in this story right God Moses is reminding them of the things that their parents did wrong but the implication is but God forgave you that's why we're here we're standing on the edge right now right it, you can make it full circle you can come back again and, um, and it may take longer, it may be more painful, but you can still experience the goodness of God in the, even if you fall flat on your face. And I think that that's also a very helpful thing to, to keep in mind as well. I think Caleb was a constant reminder. Oh, yeah. that the one old guy over there. <laughs> yeah, somebody who was faithful the whole time and was promised land and went into the land that he walked on that God does remember and he is merciful absolutely this is one of the only times I don't know where it is probably we're talking about the giants or something where uh, Caleb is a Kenite right? Kenite or Kenite? Kenizite Kenizite one of the two but that's, that's this is one of the only times that that's mentioned and you realize it's without any uh, any thought of contradiction that he must have converted and followed or something. Kenites were descendants of Midian. Descendants of Midian. Cousins of. Uh, um, Moses' wife. Yeah. Where where is that? I mean, somebody read it today. Well, were you talking about Caleb? No, uh, where yeah. it the Kenites, the Kenizzites. Oh, Caleb's mentioned the all the guys with the chocolate. You know. Caleb's mentioned in 136, but I'm not sure what else you're talking about. Yeah, there's a son of Yitwana. Who read it? Somebody in this room. 136? 136 is where Caleb mentioned, but that's not, doesn't, that's not just says who his father is. This is where, you know, the people that you're going to take over. I thought it was where the Philistines were. Caftorites, the Caftor. Is it the beginning of chapter 3? Yeah, your grandpa doesn't know he's in for you. Kenites are not mentioned in Deuteronomy. Has somebody read it? 
Kenites and Kenizzites, I thought, were mentioned. Kenizzite, yeah, Kenizzites are good. Well, it's in Joshua where Caleb is actually called the, the son of Jephunai, the Kenizzite, to this. Kenizzite. Kenizzite. Where is the Kenizzite? It's not mentioned until Joshua, if you're talking about Caleb specifically. Okay. The book of Joshua. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm thinking the only place, the only reason we can't, nobody can find it. The Cadmonites actually are mentioned at the same time in Genesis, so maybe that's where you go. The Cadmonites. I, it must be in the commentary. Yeah, the Cadmonites. Ah. And Cadmonites, by the way, I always think these guys did all the chopping. It just sounds like chopping. Um, but yeah, it's the Cadman, I mean, the it's the, the land is called the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites. Right. Where is that? That's Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. The, 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 they the must have mentioned mentions it, it must in parentheses. Mentioned. That's right. It's giving us that ah, background. Ah, <coughs> of course. And the covenant of the parts, which is exactly what uh, Rick is referring to. Abraham was promised the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Rashi explains there are ten nations listed here, but he gave them only seven nations. The other three, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, which are the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, are destined to be our heritage in the future. I knew I read it. Gee, wait. So, yeah. If that's the land of the Canaanites, these are other people other than the descendants. Original of inhabitants of Canaan. Yeah. And that is where Caleb comes from. He's a Canaanite. Which means, ultimately, he's a Canaanite. How about that? I like that. So like what's, he, what's he doing? Well, he got to the take Jews? over Hebrew, he, Hebron. Hebron, right? Yeah. He's a player. Because he joined God's people. He's representing Ju Judah. Yeah. yeah. Which is astonishing. Yeah, when we were talking about uh, people and bad influences and good influences, I've always been struck at like the difference in the numbers after they do the count of the people, and then there's the plague, and then they count them again. Yeah. And the three tribes that take the worst hit are the three that are camped together. It's Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. That's right. Uh, or not Levi. Not Levi. Yeah. Simeon definitely by far takes the biggest hit, but then the one that actually increases is the tribe of Judah, Judah yeah. and everyone that's camped with them, they didn't really get hit by the plague very much at all compared hmm. to the rest of them. Hmm. I did what, sir? Computers making hey, noise. I, I'm ignoring all of that. I think there are people working today. Or they don't work for me, but they seem to think that I'm interested in what they're doing. <laughs> if, if I didn't know Scott was going to call on me to make music or have the Torah laid out, I just turn the stupid thing off. Um, can I mention uh, Deuteronomy 4? You can mention That's next week, right? No, it's this week. Deuteronomy 4? Correct. Isn't it? No. No, I think no. we end on 322. Never mind. I'll mention it later. Well, next week. We'll be here next week. Go ahead, bud. Yeah, come on. We all want to hear. Well, I should have guessed when it said second reading. What an idiot. <laughs> Just uh, the.
precursor to the Shema is in Deuteronomy 4, where it talks about, see, I've taught you commands, super-rational commands, rational commands, to observe within the land which you're going to enter and possess. You should preserve them and perform them, for this is your wisdom. And understanding in the eyes of the nations who will hear all these laws and say, only this great nation is a truly wise and understanding people. Which other nation is so great that it has a God so close to us as God is, uh, is near to us whenever we call him? For whenever we call upon him in prayer, he answers. And which nation is so great that it has supernatural commands and rational commands that are fair, like all the laws of this Torah, which I am presenting before you today? Remain. Then it says, be careful. Keep track of yourselves as well. It's like we are predisposed to cast off what we know to be true. Yeah. Yeah. Prager was uh, commenting on Cain, and uh, he's God says you can you can master sin is crouching at the door, but you can master it. And he says the key to eradicating bad behavior is understanding and acknowledging that you can be master over it. Here, he's expecting if we are careful, we can obey him. We can please him. Which which flies in the face of, of, of 2,000 years of theology that says you can't do it. You can't keep this. You can't do it. It's impossible to do it. Ironically and practically, it's been taught that you must. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it is ironic. Uh, some of the best godly people today have been taught all their lives, you can't do it, but they do it. But they do it. Yeah. And their righteousness shines. Absolutely. And we, we lift them up because of it. Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, I tend to find things in the Torah to be significantly more doable than some of the things Yeshua talked about. Absolutely. But we can do what Yeshua talked about as well. You know, God is not in the habit of giving us instructions that we can't keep. Well, that would be the wrong kind of God. That's not. Yeah, kind that of God. sounds like that God, the fourteenth attribute, the vengeful God. Yeah, that, yeah. that's a yeah, capricious fair. God yeah. who just gets mad because you can't do it. I told you to do it, but I can't do it. I know, but I'm gonna get, I just gave it to you so I get mad at you. What? No, no, I'll forgive you. Aren't I benevolent? Oh man. No, that, that so is, glad that his is ways wrong. are higher than our ways. That is, that'd, be, that'd be so sad. Yeah. But no, but the idea that we can do it and therefore we should do it, I think you're absolutely right because um, that was uh, Gregory's comment earlier about when you're really down, you should think positively. That's kind of how this week's Torah portion ends. After kind of beating them up for the things they did wrong, it ends by talking about their successes because it's very important that you realize you can be good. You can do what God says. You can be righteous. Because if you get sucked into, oh, well, it's me, I'm so lousy, I'm a worm, I'm a whatever, then you end up getting to the point where, well, it doesn't even matter anyway. And if it did matter, I can't do it, so therefore, why try? And that, that is the most demoralizing. I mean, I think um, uh, Greg gave me a podcast, and I've totally forgotten the guy's name. There's the inspirational, inspirational, inspirational speaker. Um, yes, Ed Millet. Um, and his comment was all he's like the importance uh, one of the things he talked about was the importance of momentum and that like you start with small wins that are easy to get and they build on each other and before you know it you have the energy and the, and the, and the confidence to be able to do great things 
because you're able to start with things that you could do. And, um, and I think that that, uh, you know, that's kind of the same idea here. It's like you should believe that you can do it. That's a huge piece of this. Um, going back to what somebody talked about earlier, uh, these are kind of little comments. If you have a homage, the very, very last page oftentimes has this little uh, commentary. It says that there are 105 verses in this uh, parsha, and these numerically correspond to the mnemonic, uh, mnemonic excuse me, Malkei Hashem. Now, the, um, for those of you who don't may know, uh, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet corresponds to a number. So you can literally take numbers and make words out of them. Um, so that's what they do here. They take the numbers 105, they find letters that add up to 105, and they put them into a phrase. The mnemonic, this is a commentary in the, in the Yard Scroll Chumash, the mnemonic suggests that God gave authority over the countries of the world to their respective kings, because the, the mnemonic is the, the kings of God, or something along those lines. Meaning that he has ultimate authority over the world, so that he was justified in giving the land to Israel when it pleased him to do so. But I also think about earlier comments about how God interferes in the acts of man. And ultimately, it's all about his people. That's his whole purpose. Mm -hmm. um, about Cyrus being king just so he could send the people of Israel back to rebuild the, rebuild the temple. Uh, I think about the story of Esther and how God, um, you know, apparently cared about whether or not some pagan king of Persia got mad at his current wife because that was the tool that he used to put Esther in place to save the Jewish people. So you think and who about who knows if you were putting a child right, such a time, such time as, as this. this, and you think about that, and it's, it's this. I think that that's a cool. This the how people commented on this week's portion talking about, um, and these people got this land. These people got this. Land. That's not there for no reason. It's not just a random history telling so that you kind of get a general idea of what was going on at the time. It's. Um, it's a reminder that God is involved even where you can't see him. And even when the people who are having his, him act in their lives don't see him. Um, and, it's, and I think that's also very important, especially in, in today's times. Any final comments? No? Dad, would you close us in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are a good and forgiving God. We thank you that your expectations for us are not undoable or impossible, but Father, that you have given us the desire even to please you. Father, we ask that you might continue to uh, help us to be strong and to help us to be uh, obedient, help us to be thankful. And we are thankful for you and for your word. We pray this in the Messiah Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Good Shabbos, Ben and Brock. Ben and Brock.